I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. Hey there, you've tuned in to Everything Bagels on 88.7 The Bay or MuskokaRadio.com. Winner of the Kareen Burns Best Talk Show Award, Everything Bagels is eclectic and gluten-free. It's a show about anything and everything, perhaps even bagels. Guests include alternative health practitioners, artists, bakers, canoe builders and canoeists, composers and musicians, jewelers, photographers, writers, and anyone else I find interesting. I'm Jenny Cressman, your host for the next half hour. I enjoy chatting with interesting people, and I hope you'll enjoy my show. Here we go. And welcome to another episode of Everything Bagels with me, Jenny Cressman, your host with the most, the most interesting guests. And today, my interesting guest is somebody I've known for a while in various incarnations, Randy Peel Sticker. Welcome, Randy. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. I'm glad to have you finally in the studio. We've been trying to do this for a while, but you're a busy guy these days. Winter is a is a tough time for me to uh, have any time for extracurricular activities. <laughs> yes, winter indeed, because in your role now, that is the key part of the year. Tell us what you're doing and why. So I'm currently working as the general manager at uh, Hidden Valley, the Muskoka Ski Club. And I've been there for, this is my second season now, and it's been... Uh, a bit of a challenging year. The weather has not been very cooperative this season. Um, you know, I'm not even sure that the ground ever froze this year. So it Oy. makes it difficult for those of us in the world of snow farming. <laughs> yes, yeah, snow farming. Yeah. That's a good word for it. Yeah. <laughs> so you were previously involved with a different resort, Sir Sam's. That's correct. Was that the first time you jumped into the ski business? I've been working in the ski industry for a long time. Uh, I've been a ski technician, a ski salesperson. I've been a ski instructor. Um, so I've done lots of things throughout the ski industry, and I've been skiing for 42 years, I guess, now. So Oh, yikes. Since yeah. you were two. <laughs> Three. <laughs> okay. And you've skied at various places. Didn't, you did some international skiing, didn't you, as I recall? Absolutely. So I've uh, certainly skied all over North America, the east side, the west side, uh, even in the middle. I lived in Saskatoon when I was very young, and <laughs> they have a ski hill there called Table Mountain. It's very flat. Is it two uh, feet high or what? <laughs> um, but I've also skied in Japan, and mm. I've skied in Argentina, and uh, I did a master's degree in glaciology, and I did all my field work in Switzerland and France. So I did Wow. take my skis with me while I was doing some field work there as well. Glaciology. I've never even heard of that. What What's involved? What? Well, glaciology is uh, a, a very well-rounded science. So okay. it incorporates um, not just the study of glaciers and the land formations that they create. So there is a whole geomorphology side of things, but it also incorporates climatology and oceanography, and uh, it looks at things on a on a timeline which is quite expansive. As you know, the last ice age was just twelve thousand years ago, but the first one was about five million years ago. Uh huh. So. It- 
How many words for snow do you know? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> okay, go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, and we have to also remember this is a family-friendly show. So <laughs> right now your words for snow may not be arable. <laughs> but how did you get interested in glaciology? Well, actually, when I was living in BC, I was doing my tourism degree, and um, part of that degree was a lot of training for avalanche rescue, avalanche forecasting, and there was this whole aspect of snow science that got me really intrigued, Um, and so uh, at the time, there was a Uh, a PhD program out of the University of Calgary that uh, was geared right towards being an avalanche forecaster. Mm. Um, However, while I was doing my master's, uh, the professor who was facilitating that program retired and no one took it up after he left. So it just kind of fizzled out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you just went off to Europe instead. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Where do you like to ski best? Oh, that is uh, that is a really loaded question. So, uh, in a general sense, I like to ski where there are no chairlifts. Mm-hmm. I like to do backcountry ski touring where you put the skins on the bottom of your skis. Mm-hmm. And in Ontario, the climbs aren't that big, um, but when you get out into uh, the Rockies or the Andes or the Alps, uh, mm-hmm. you can climb for the entire day and. It's great exercise, yes, um, but I also really enjoy the uphills because it gives you a time to really look around Mm. and appreciate the environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you are charging down the hill, um, sometimes you're so focused on keeping it together that uh, (laughs) you don't really get to look around and appreciate all those things that you're you're surrounded with. Yeah, well, that's very good. The ups and downs of life are also (laughs) important. But... That's not the only activity you've been involved with. It would be a big part of your life, but there is another outdoor activity, which in my mind, you're very strongly associated with. Shall we jump into that one? We can. You know what it is. (laughs) Yes, I'm a very avid cyclist. (laughs) (laughs) And that too has taken you all over the world. I've ridden my bike uh, so There was a good decade of my life, I'm going to say between 2004 and 2014, where I was doing a lot of cycling. I was working as a cycle tour guide, and I was doing some personal expeditions as well. But during that decade, I pedaled 85,000 kilometers through 42 different countries. Wow. Yeah. Wowee. And that includes uh, six crossings of Africa, three crossings of Europe. Uh, two different tours in South America. I did a solo tour around Australia. Um, and then obviously lots of uh, local stuff here. Um, I did uh, start my own cycle tour company for a very brief time, uh, running a tour called the Georgian Giro, which was hmm. a 15-day vehicle-supported tour that went all through Halliburton, Algonquin, Muskoka, uh, and the Georgian Bay region, Manitoulin Island, Bruce Peninsula. It was uh, a really, a really beautiful trip. 
Um, and then, of course, there was the great times you and I had in Cuba, Jenny. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yes, biking in Cuba is a little different than you expected, I think, as I recall. <laughs> uh, I actually really enjoyed uh, the coastal rides in Cuba. It, the, the, the part of Cuba that we went to was, mm-hmm. um, you know, very remote and there, there was a lot of wilderness there. And uh, the coastal roads were absolutely beautiful. Yes. Yes, and the but the mountain uh, roads were a bit challenging, and the they were, especially the ones that were in disrepair. <laughs> I'm not going to say any of the roads in Cuba were in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that part of the country, in particular, and and as I recall, we had planned this biking group in Cuba at Mered del Portillo, where I'd been leading groups, and. Uh, I told you sort of roughly what I thought would be viable. And you said, oh, no, that's not enough time. We'll we'll need to spend longer and go a greater distance each day. And then when you got there and did a little scouting, you did pull back and not doing quite the, the big adventures that you'd originally thought possible. Well, it was uh, a combination of factors, Um, one, catering to the group of cyclists that we were leading. Um, And beyond that, I think the temperatures were a big factor as well. You know, we wanted to get out early in the day and and cycle before it got too hot. But, you know, by 11 o'clock, it was 40 degrees and (laughs) And smoking. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, any cyclist doesn't like to ride in those those sorts of temperatures. Yeah. And it was slower going because of the challenging road surfaces for sure. Absolutely. But people really enjoyed it, even though it was really just a a short excursion in the morning. Most of the time, some people went out on their own in the afternoon and it was a lot of fun doing those trips. Well, I've always found that uh, cycling is the most experiential means of travel. Mm. Um, You know, I often refer to the displacement effect you might have if you get on a on a plane or in a bus or on a train or even in the car, Um, you know, you kind of zone out everything between point A and point B, Um, whereas when you travel by bicycle, it is in your face, literally. It's uh, all <laughs> the elements. The uh, yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's the bugs. Sometimes it's the rain. Sometimes it's the wind. Um, but not just the elements. You hear the bird song in the forest. Hmm. You smell the food cooking in the villages. Uh, it, it really does stimulate all your senses. Mm-hmm. And you get to really appreciate the transitions of geography, culture, and landscape as you're traveling from one place to the next. Yes, yes, that's very true. What would be the the favorite place for you to have do more biking or to have biked or would like to bike? Do you have a like bucket list for places to bike or so uh, uh again that's a, a bit of a loaded question because uh, <laughs> I have convoluted. cycled <laughs> in in a lot of places that I have found spectacular. Um I would say that my favorite cycle tour that I've done mm-hmm. was the Carretera Austral which oh. is a cycling route that crisscrosses through the Andes and between Chile and Argentina from Mm. the Lake District uh, all the way down to Ushuaia, which is the southernmost pavement on the planet. Wow. Um, And it's a very, very limited window of opportunity Uh when you can actually cycle down there um, just with the weather and the seasons. But I'll tell you, Patagonia is always windy. Oh, <laughs> And okay. uh, wind is like the invisible enemy when you're on a bicycle. Yes. When there's a hill in front of you, you can see the hill. Yes. You know the hill is coming. 
you can attack the hill, you can change your gears, you can prepare for it, but the wind is invisible and it gusts when you're not expecting it. And uh, it can be the biggest challenge for cycling for sure. Oh, and I can definitely corroborate that. When I was living in Kansas and biking there, I remember facing a headwind that was just crazy. The invisible enemy. Exactly. Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to just uh, leave our invisible friends for a moment and come back in a few minutes after this commercial break. Thanks so much, Jenny. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. So we're in the studio today with Randy Peelsticker, and we're having a very eclectic, free-ranging conversation. <laughs> and so we're talking about biking. That's yes. the latest thing we've been chatting about. And I want to know more about how you got involved with the bike tours in Africa. Can you share a little bit about how that all evolved? Sure. Well, uh, I was 25 when I did my first solo cycle tour around Australia. And while I was there, I met someone who told me that there was a bike race that was going north to south the entire length of Africa. And I said, there's no way, because if that existed, I would have found out about it by now. Um, So anyways, I finished my uh, half year tour around Australia and uh, went back to uh, to my family's home in Mississauga. And I was looking for work and all I really wanted to do was keep riding my bike. And so I looked up this bike race in Africa and it turned out their head office was down at Queen and Spadina in downtown <laughs> Toronto. So I jumped on the GO train and went down and met... What? Uh, you didn't take your bike? <laughs> <laughs> it was winter. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I went and met uh, a gentleman by the name of Henry Gold, who was the founder of the Tour d'Afrique, and which is now called TDA Global Cycling. Uh, the... The ride from Cairo to Cape Town was their flagship program. Hmm. Um, But uh, while I was there, we expanded to do Paris to Istanbul, Istanbul to Beijing, Rio to Quito. um, And now I think they are running tours on every continent on the planet. So uh, it's quite an extensive repertoire. And I believe they... Uh, just finished their, uh, their centennial tour. They, they've done a hundred tours wow. um, with that, that little company. So, so a tour or a race? Well, it's a bit of both. So, okay. um, uh, again, um, you know, my biggest group was 82 clients, uh, 16 staff members and five support vehicles. And there are many clients who join those tours to have tea in every single village and take 3000 photographs and try to <laughs> learn all the languages and meet the people. And there's other people who want to grind their teeth and be the fastest person to bike across Africa. Uh So one of my challenges as the tour director was trying to cater to those two very, very diverse groups of people. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, that's always the challenge in tourism. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Bag of people. They're all fun. But how did you particularly um, get into Tour de Frique. You went with a particular goal, I believe, initially. So so the first time that I did ride across Africa, I was actually working as a uh, volunteer bike mechanic for Mm -hmm. the tour company. And uh, I was also doing a fundraiser. So uh, back in those days, I was very involved with a charitable organization called About Face. Mm -hmm. Um, 
for those of you who can't see me right now, I actually have a birthmark that covers the right side of my face. And this organization, About Face, offered non-medical support for people with facial differences. Um, one of the things that I had done with them was to start a um, a weekend retreat for teenagers um, with the goal to try to evolve that into a summer camp program. And so the first time I rode across Africa, I was doing a fundraiser that uh, helped pave the way for a program called Camp Trailblazers, which did uh, was operated by uh, about face, but at one point it was happening in seven different provinces across Canada. It, wow. it really took off, and uh, it wasn't just for the teenagers. We started doing um, a family camp program mm-hmm. to bring in some younger kids. We were doing a leadership expedition for the teenagers who had aged out of the summer camp mm-hmm. program so they could then come back and work for us as counselors. And then we started doing an adult program as well, which still had some outdoor recreational activities, um, but it was also involving some more fine dining and uh, a glass of wine when we had our chats in the evening. So it was uh, nice. it was really uh, a great program that we had rolled out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many years did it last? I was involved with those uh, projects from, uh, I'm going to say, about 2004 right through to about 2015. Okay. Um, and then, the uh, to be honest, the, the not-for-profit uh, industry was getting pinched from mm. sort of um, either perspective from the, you know, the huge fundraisers like, cancer and the ride to conquer and all these things. But at the same time, that's when all the GoFundMe pages started becoming Uh, really popular as well. And some of these small organizations stuck in the middle um, were really struggling to find the funding to, to keep the projects going. Yeah. That's, that's unfortunate. It's yeah. yeah, It's sort of like uh, the gap between rich and poor. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was very competitive for those fundraising dollars. Yeah, but you were involved with Tour de Frique for quite a while yourself. Uh, about a decade, yeah. About a decade. And in that time, you mentioned that you sort of missed winter. <laughs> like, what? As somebody who really has a little bit too much winter in her life, <laughs> tell me about that. So, yeah, I it, I don't know if it was my biological clock that was uh, tweaking or, or what, but uh, not having that seasonal variation, being in permanent summer all the time, was uh, starting to uh, really be a challenge for me. So I was really missing skiing. I was really missing all sorts of winter activities, ice hockey, Nordic skiing, snowshoeing, mm-hmm. all of the above. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do love winter. I've always been uh, a big fan of, of snow. And the, um, the the bike tours that we were doing in Africa, they take place um, from January until May every year. So, uh, you know, I would get uh, a preseason trip out to Mount Tremblant, maybe in early December with some friends. And that was the extent of my my ski season when I was doing those tours. So, um, so it just wasn't enough. Yeah. So now you're here having more than enough, perhaps. <laughs> so well, you've got a lot going on at Hidden Valley. We do. We have uh, we've had a, a great season there uh, in terms of. Uh, all the different events and lots of new things happening this year. Some new staff members, some new 
programming. Um, we are just getting through the Muskoka Rodeo, which is the um, the U10, U12 championships for all of Ontario. Uh, we've had over 250 athletes competing here um, for the last couple days. And uh, with those athletes come their coaches, their parents, their siblings. So it really does uh, make for a great finale to the ski season, although we're not quite done yet. Next weekend, we will be open for our puddle jump event, and then we're hoping to be open for Easter weekend as well this year. Yeah, well, Easter comes early, and hopefully for you, the snow will last longer. We're we're taking (laughs) advantage of the calendar this year, for sure. Do you have any events at Hidden Valley that combine biking and skiing? At this point, no. Um, There's, uh, in the world of insurance, having skiing and biking taking place on the same terrain at the same time is not uh, really... uh, No, it's not kosher. No, they're not really good with that. Um, But we do work very closely with the Huntsville Mountain Bike Association, Mm -hmm. and they have been doing an amazing job over the past few years in developing the network of trails, not just at Hidden Valley, but throughout throughout Muskoka. They have several different venues. Uh, We are going to be developing more trails this summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're looking to host an enduro cycling event as well. Uh, I believe the date for that is July 17. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, biking is uh, a big passion of mine. I was a um, bike mechanic and a salesperson and a shop manager for Algonquin <laughs> Outfitters for yes. many years. Yes, and, which uh, is how we met. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, there's a, a great cycling community here in Huntsville and in Muskoka. There are beautiful places to ride, whether you're looking for trail or road. Um, it is a great place to be a cyclist. And it's also a great place to be a musician. That's another thing I know about you. You like to bang a drum. (laughs) (laughs) I have been known to do such things. Um, I've been playing drums for uh, a long, long time, uh, all through um, elementary school and high school. I even did a minor in music when I was at Lakehead. Um, And when I had moved back to Huntsville, uh, there was a, a group of people that were hosting drum circles at the Pioneer Village um, oh, years yeah. and years and years uh-huh. ago. Um, and I really got into hand drumming, learned all sorts of different techniques and rhythms, mm-hmm. and not just uh, how to play the drum, but also um, the, you know, a bit more of the culture and the meaning behind, mm. um, you know, a lot of these rhythms have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot more to them than just something that you're going to dance to. There's a story behind them. There's a purpose okay. behind them. Uh, and then again, uh, you know, beyond African rhythms, uh, Latin rhythms are yeah. also very spectacular. It's uh, so complicated. As a drummer, <laughs> yes. And uh, so again, when we were in Cuba, I was certainly getting to know some of the musicians there. And uh, it was it was great. One of the things I love the most about um, about drumming is it defies so many barriers. Yeah. You, it doesn't matter what your religion is, what language you speak, what color your skin is. Everybody can dance to a good rhythm. Or what season it is. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for coming in and sharing a little bit about this season in your life, Randy Peelsticker. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. It's always a pleasure. Okay. And bye for now. We'll be back in two weeks. Take care. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Everything Bagels. This show airs every other Sunday on 887 The Bay and is available shortly thereafter in podcast format. Podcast archives can be found on the station's website, muskokaradio.com, where you can also listen live. I regularly post show reminders and links on Facebook, as well as photos of guests. Look for author Jenny Cressman and follow me around. If you know someone who might make an interesting guest, please send me your suggestion via private message on Facebook. Everything Bagels will be back again in two weeks. Meanwhile, have a bagel and enjoy everything you can.